It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law. Featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney and partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to malkbaker.com. That's M A U C K B A K E R.com or calling 312 726 1243. Today, our guest is Luke Goodrich, Vice President and Senior Legal Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty a public interest legal institute with a mission to protect religious freedom for all. Beckett recently represented two religious leaders and the interests of many in their defense of the parsonage allowance against an atheist group challenged to this exemption with nearly a billion in yearly taxes on the line. Luke, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Whit. Glad to be here. First, uh, what after all, is the parsonage allowance. So the parsonage allowance is a long-standing provision of the tax code. It's been around since uh, the 1920s, and it basically allows religious organizations to provide a home to ministers or to provide a, a cash housing allowance to ministers. And that home or that cash housing allowance is not counted as income for purposes of income tax. So it relieves a small burden of taxes on ministers of all different faiths, and it's very important to ministers all across the country. Why should there be a, a housing tax exemption for, uh, for pastors, and I, and I take it for clergy of, of any religion? Yeah, so that's a that's a key question in the case. And in order to understand the answer, you got to know just a, a tiny bit about tax law. But I won't I won't make it too boring. So uh, I'm sitting in an office chair right now that was given to me by my employer, and I'm talking on a cell phone that was given to me by my employer. Uh, when I go travel and represent, uh, when I argued this case in the Seventh Circuit, my employer gave me cash to pay for an airline ticket pay for hotel, pay for meals, and a lot of workers uh, also get these kind of cash benefits, and none of them is taxed as income. I don't pay taxes on my office chair, on my phone, or my laptop. I don't pay taxes on my travel expenses when my employer uh, reimburses those. And the question is, why is that? And the reason, according to the tax code, is something called the convenience of the employer doctrine. And the basic theory is my employer is giving these things to me uh, not just for my personal consumption and pleasure. It's giving them to me as a tool to enable me to better do my job. And so for uh, as long as we've had an income tax in this country since 1913, the IRS has recognized what's called the convenience of the employer doctrine. And basically when your employer is giving you an important tool for your job, uh, it's typically not taxed as income. And this same doctrine applies not just to office chairs and laptops and airline tickets, but also to housing. Uh, so the quintessential example would be like an apartment manager 
where the landlord uh, hires a manager and gives him an apartment in the apartment complex, and he lives there rent-free so he can maintain the, the property and respond to tenants. Um, the IRS does not tax that free apartment as income. Same is true of hotel managers who live at the hotel or uh, construction workers who maybe live in a, uh, a trailer at, the construct at a remote construction site. And over time, the IRS has extended this principle to hundreds of thousands of workers who face significant job-related demands on their housing. Uh, soldiers, diplomats, Peace Corps workers, prison wardens, nonprofit presidents, uh, school teachers, nurses, fishermen, and many more. And so uh, in 1921, Congress also extended this same rule to ministers and recognized that often ministers are using their home for the ministry of the church. And so when the church gives them a home or a housing allowance, that should not be taxed as income. Well, thanks, Luke. That's uh, one of the uh, most cogent explanations of that that I've ever heard. Uh, you're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Whit Brisky of the law firm of Malk and Baker. If you're just tuning in or want to hear other Lawyers for Jesus interviews, visit MalkBaker.com. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter or follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, I've been speaking with Luke Goodrich, Vice President and Senior Legal Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, about his defense of the parsonage allowance. Now, Luke, uh, what was the challenge uh, to this uh, uh, parsonage allowance, which seemed very reasonable to, to me anyway, and uh, how did the uh, district court rule on this challenge? Yeah, so a group of atheists called the Freedom from Religion Foundation uh, sued the IRS and said, we don't think it's fair that you're giving this tax exemption to ministers. We think this is unconstitutional establishment of religion. You're violating the separation of the church and state. And we want a court to strike down the housing allowance for ministers as unconstitutional. And uh, they actually did get a federal district judge in Wisconsin to rule that the parsonage allowance, the, the housing allowance provision for ministers, is unconstitutional. Uh, my firm, the Beckett Fund, uh, intervened in the case. We said, you know, wait a minute, the atheists are suing the IRS, but somebody is missing from this lawsuit, and the ones who are missing are ministers who are actually going to be the ones who are harmed by this lawsuit. So we intervened in the case on behalf of uh, Chris Butler, who's a Southside Chicago pastor uh, who receives a housing allowance. Uh, and also Bishop Ed Peacher, also a Southside pastor, uh, and Father Pat Malone, who's an Anglican priest in Wisconsin. And our argument was along the lines of what I was outlining, saying, hey, this tax exemption for ministers, this is not special treatment for ministers. This is part of the much broader convenience of the employer doctrine that the IRS has recognized ever since we've had an income tax. And so when the IRS declines to tax ministers on the value of their home or their housing allowance, it's actually treating ministers the same as hundreds of thousands of secular workers who uh, also get tax-exempt housing or housing allowances. And we appealed the case up to the Seventh Circuit, uh, had the privilege of arguing it in Chicago, and just recently the court, the Seventh Circuit, unanimously ruled in favor of the ministers 
and agreed with the arguments that we were making. All right, and can you explain uh, with a little more detail um, what the uh, Seventh Circuit ruled? Sure. So the the primary or the lead point in the ruling was rooted in the convenience of the employer doctrine. So the court, yes, when a when a court looks at one of these cases involving uh, the First Amendment Establishment Clause, there are various types of tests that it can apply. And the Seventh Circuit in this case applied two different tests, one called the Lemon Test and one called a Historical Test. And under the Lemon Test, the first question is, does this law have a secular purpose? Is, is this tax exemption furthering a secular purpose? And the court said that there are three uh, secular purposes furthered by this tax exemption. The first, as I mentioned, was providing equal treatment to ministers under the convenience of the employer doctrine. Make sure ministers are not treated worse than the hundreds of thousands of non-religious workers who get similar tax exempt exemptions for their housing allowances. Uh, the second secular purpose that the court identified was actually reducing uh, entanglement between church and state. Because if you didn't have uh, a specific tax exemption for, that, for housing allowances for ministers, um, the IRS would ha have to go in and look at how ministers were using their home on a day-to-day basis and say, well, do you really need to be holding Bible studies in your home? Do you, do you really need to be counseling parishioners in your home? And the IRS would ultimately have to make a case-by-case -case judgment of whether ministers really needed to use their home for their jobs. And so the Seventh Circuit rightly said um, that this tax exemption for ministers reduces that kind of entanglement uh, between the IRS and the church. And then lastly, the court said that this tax exemption ensured that all ministers were treated equally under the tax code. You didn't have some of them getting a tax exemption and others not. And under the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, um, reducing discrimination among different types of religious denominations is a very important secular purpose. So that's, that's kind of the, the Seventh Circuit's analysis uh, under the Lemon Test in a nutshell. Uh, and then after the Lemon Test, the court moved to a historical analysis where it basically looked at you know, what constituted an establishment of religion at the time of the founding. And if you actually look at the history of our country, tax exemptions for churches and ministers were widespread at the time of the founding and they weren't viewed as an establishment of religion. And so the court basically said that if you look at history, history supports the conclusion that this sort of tax exemption is not unconstitutional. And that wrapped up the court's ruling. Well, and, and in fact, uh, this uh, uh, tax exemption for churches or for pastors uh, applies uh, much more broadly than in this one income tax area. In almost all states, uh, real estate, which is used for churches and religious organizations, is also real estate tax exempt. So this is not uh, just a very limited thing, but, but very broad. Coming up, we will hear more from Luke Goodrich of Beckett Law about the implications of the parsonage allowance, case on pastors and other clergy. I'm Whit Brisky. And this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. Hi, 
Hi, this is Pastor McCracken, pastor of the Church of Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Markham, Illinois. For the last four years, our church has been struggling to overcome the city's efforts to shut us down. In the midst of all of our legal issues, we felt overwhelmed and discouraged. All we wanted to do was worship the Lord and serve our community. We needed a law firm that not only had the knowledge of the law, but the same commitment of the kingdom of God. The Lord connected us with the law firm of Malcolm Baker. The attorneys at Malcolm Baker have not only provided us with exceptional legal representation and counsel, but have also provided us with the added gift of lawyers who pray with us and seek the guidance of the Lord at every step. After working with Malcolm Baker, we can't imagine working with anyone else. If your church or ministry has any legal needs, please call us, 312-726-1243, or look us up online at maukbaker.com. Welcome again to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney at Malkin Baker, a law firm based in Chicago which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals with their legal needs. If you missed the first part of our show and want to listen online, go to malkbaker.com forward slash radio. Today I've been speaking with Luke Goodrich, Vice President and Senior Legal Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty about the recent Seventh Circuit opinion upholding the parsonage allowance. For those who have just joined us, the parsonage allowance allows pastors to exclude the value of any housing provided by their church from their income for income tax purposes. Now, you explained uh, in the last segment uh, how uh, the Seventh Circuit ruled that the parsonage allowance passed something called the lemon test and also an historical test. And I just wonder, uh, how does a court know which test to use and where do these tests come from in the first place? Yeah, so the Supreme Court's jurisprudence under the Establishment Clause has been widely criticized as, as confused and inconsistent. And over the last, you know, since about the 1970s, the Supreme Court has never really been able to get a consistent majority for a single method of interpreting the Establishment Clause. So there are various cases that propose various tests, the Lemon Test, the Endorsement Test, the Coercion Test, the Historical Test. And lower courts have long lamented the confused state of Supreme Court's jurisprudence in this area and will often just kind of throw in the whole kitchen sink and apply all the different tests. Uh, and so Basically, lower courts have been asking the Supreme Court for clarity. Uh, in this particular case, the court applied two of the most prominent tests, the Lemon Test and the History Test, and the Supreme Court right now is actually considering another case where it might be able to clear up some of the confusion around its Establishment Clause jurisprudence. Okay. Well, this, although this case originated here in um, the Seventh Circuit, uh, which is based in Chicago, why would people of faith all around the country be uh, interested in its outcome? This case has huge implications for religious organizations all across the country. Uh, as you mentioned, just on a year-to-year -year basis, this housing allowance uh, tax exemption for ministers uh, saves churches across the country almost $1 billion per year in taxes. 
And I think the, the practical effect of that is shown by, the, by our clients in the case. You know, pastor Chris Butler on the south side of Chicago uh, is a pastor of a, a small church, doesn't have a huge budget or huge income. It can't, can't afford to pay him a full-time salary. And so part of the way he's able to remain in the ministry is that he receives a housing allowance that's not taxed as income. And if this were struck down, uh, as the lower court initially held it should be, uh, the hardest hit people in the country would be pastors of small churches and the communities that they serve. Uh, these churches would have to cut back on their vital ministries. Uh, they would also, in some cases, may even have to shut down. So the ruling here has a, a huge impact on the day-to-day -day life of, of churches and other houses of worship across the country. Um, but it also has implications beyond simply uh, churches and ministers, because how the court interprets the First Amendment, how the court interprets the Establishment Clause, uh, really dictates the relationship between church and state in this country. And that matters not only for this particular housing tax exemption, uh, but all sorts of other tax exemptions, and even all the other contact points between the government and religion in society. They all come back to how does the court interpret the First Amendment? And so getting it right in these kinds of cases is vitally important. Well, this, came, this case just came down uh, recently. Uh, do you anticipate that the, uh, the losers here are going to uh, file a petition for cert with the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah, the, the atheists that brought this lawsuit, they have two options right now. So their first option, they could ask the Seventh Circuit to rehear the case with a larger group of judges. That's called en banc rehearing. And then uh, whether they ask for that or not, and whether the court grants it or not, they still have the option of appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they would have to do that probably sometime later this summer. And they haven't really given any indication of wanting to back down, so I would expect the case to continue until it's fully resolved. Of course, we don't know at this point whether or not the Supreme Court will take the case if there is a uh, petition, uh, but this uh, might provide an opportunity for the court to, to clarify its uh, First Amendment jurisprudence. That's right. At, at the Beckett Fund, we've been arguing for quite some time that you know, the, the Lemon Test, is, uh, which has been so heavily criticized by the lower courts as highly subjective, uh, we've been arguing that the court should replace that, and part of what we argued in this case is the court should look to history, look to what constituted an establishment of religion at the time of the founding. And if you look at history, you know, the founders had a very clear perception of what an establishment of religion was. The, the England had an established church, and nine of the 13 original colonies had established churches. And what that meant was the government controlled the doctrine and personnel of the church. Uh, it required attendance in the established church. Uh, it provided special funding for the established church, and it punished uh, dissenters with uh, liabilities on their political participation, like they were denied the right to vote, uh, and sometimes with criminal penalties. And that gives us a clear picture of what an establishment of religion is. It, that's a, it's a uh, not a healthy thing in today's pluralistic environment to try to establish religion. But it doesn't mean that every single 
tax exemption is unconstitutional. It doesn't mean every single religious symbol in the public square is unconstitutional. Uh, the Supreme Court, unfortunately, with the Lemon Test, has often allowed the First Amendment to embody a sort of hostility toward religion in the public square, and that's never what the founders intended. So uh, at Beckett, we're optimistic that the court is heading in a better direction, and I think this case, this decision from the Seventh Circuit, and specifically its application of a historical test, points the way toward a better way of interpreting the First Amendment. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Whit Brisky of Malkin Baker, and we're talking to Luke Goodrich, Vice President and Senior Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, about recent case law regarding whether providing a government benefit to churches or to pastors automatically violates the Constitution's Establishment Clause. Now, Luke, pulling back a little bit from uh, this particular case, but also in terms of the of the motivations involved, what do you think uh, was this? Did these atheists bring this case uh, really for fairness or for or for some other reason? Well, I you know it's hard to hard to speak to their motives and their heart of hearts. Uh, I I can't judge their hearts, but if you look at their actions, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, which brought this lawsuit, has showed very consistent hostility to any manifestation of religion in the public square. Um, I think in one, one of the most extreme examples, a number of years ago, the U.S. Postal Service uh, was honoring various public figures by placing their image on, on postage stamps. And one of the figures they decided to honor was Mother Teresa uh, for her wonderful work in caring for the poorest of the poor. And you would think that Nobody would mind honoring Mother Teresa along with dozens of other major historical figures, but Freedom From Religion Foundation, who brought this suit, uh, sure enough protested and argued that honoring Mother Teresa on a postage stamp uh, was a violation of the separation of church and state. And so I think in this case, you know, I don't think they actually wanted a tax exemption for themselves. Their, their goal, I think, is simply to uh, eliminate as many tax exemptions as possible for churches and have them taxed as much as possible. All right. And uh, why is it important not only that there be fairness between um, different religious faiths, but also fairness and equality between those uh, in uh, religious work and those who are in secular work? If you zoom out and look at the broader purpose of the First Amendment, both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, the ultimate goal is to reduce government control over uh, private religious practices. And that means both uh, eliminating discrimination among religions, like treating one religion better than another, it also means eliminating discrimination between religion and non-religion by treating religion better or worse than non-religion. And that's ultimately what the tax exemption does here, and that's ultimately why the Seventh Circuit unanimously held that it was constitutional. Luke, thank you for speaking with us today. How could people learn more about Beckett? You can find us at beckettlaw.org. That's B-E-C-K-E-T-L-A-W.org. And you can find out about this case and many of our other cases uh, at beckettlaw.org. Thank you, Luke. I appreciate it. If you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, 
contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at malkbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website and subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. 312-726-1243. Thanks for listening. I'm Whit Brisky, attorney at Malkin Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. Somebody, yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.